the UK can effectively become you know, ground zero for marine energy, for tidal energy. We could be at the start of owning the next big offshore market. And I say big, and I mean big. In May of this year, the Orbital O2 tidal power turbine was sailed out of Dundee in Scotland, bound for its home off the coast of the Orkney Islands. Since then, the 680-tonne, 2-megawatt turbine has been generating power from the fast-flowing tidal waters. It's a major milestone, not just for Orbital Marine Power, who designed and built the turbine, but for the future of tidal power as a sector. I'm Kenny Whitler-Jones and this is The Project, and as part of our series on infrastructure innovators, I sat down with Chris Milne, Orbital's Finance Director, to find out more about how the company got to this point and what their plans are for the future. Chris began by telling me a story about how sometimes getting to the right technological solution all depends on how you frame the problem. If you go back to sort of the 80s, 90s, even early 2000s, you know, people were aware that there was this thing, renewable energy. It was something that, you know, was clearly going to have a, a significant role to play in the future. And there was a lot of excitement about it. And, you know, sort of at the time of clean tech 1.0, you know, the sort of the early 2000s, you know, there was a lot, there was, there was a growing appetite to find these new technologies, new solutions. And, you know, one of the things that people were, big companies were, were cognizant of and were starting to appreciate back then was that, hmm, we've managed to harness the wind. We seem to be in the process of harnessing the sun. And actually, we can see that these are going to be huge global markets. This is the type of thing that gets us excited. Great. What's next? And it makes sense that, especially in a place like the UK, which at the end of the day is a big island, uh, especially one with such uh, a strong maritime heritage as the UK, it makes made sense that people thought, right, wind, check, sun, check, oceans. That's what's next. And, you know, this is obviously an anecdotal story, but one that I can completely imagine happening. So, I mean, big companies, GE, Rolls-Royce, Siemens, all these guys were sort of looking at it, uh, the marine energy space at this point. And you can imagine, business development director has this document in his hand. It's a proposition. It's a new business they're going to try and create. He's walking down the corridor. And on the left-hand side, he's got his renewable engineer division. And he thinks, right, that's the guys. This is renewable energy. That's the guys I need to take this to. So he goes in. They look at it, they think, right, okay, horizontal flow, kinetic energy, need to transform it into electrical energy. Bingo, we know how to do this. It's a horizontal axis turbine. Basically, guys, what we're needing to do here is build a wind farm under the sea. So effectively, they recognised and they, they seen the familiarity with a problem they had already solved. And actually, if you look at the individuals, and I'm not blaming anybody here, but if you actually look at the individuals that were involved in these companies, a lot of the guys were, and, and, and uh, the, the male and female engineers were people who had actually been successful and delivered success in wind. But what happened there was that familiarity was effectively taken too far. And what they didn't appreciate or realise was just how hostile an environment the sea can be, the oceans can be, especially a tidal site. Now, when you're trying to build something on a tidal site, your construction costs are going to be high. You're talking about big, heavy lift vessels, if you can even get access to them. 
because if the oil and gas is on a boom, these things are going to be quite hard to source. You're talking about periods of time, long periods of time, possibly longer than the tidal region will, will allow to do the construction. And that means that your costs are going to be high. Beyond that, when you're actually maintaining it and trying to operate it, if something goes wrong, mm, you need to get that big ship back because you need to lift it up off the ocean floor. Mm, what happens if you have to do that four times a year instead of once a year? Or even four times a year instead of once every five years, which I think was some of the operating models that people used. The reality is, you're, no, these are additional costs and additional downtime, which means your yield is lower and your costs are higher, which means your levelised cost of energy is way high, higher than any government is going to be willing to support. So basically, if you factored the true costs and you factored the true yields into your calculations, most of these companies, I suspect, would have found that they were never going to generate any IRR. Certainly not an IRR with the type of hurdle rate that I'm sure was being set by those organisations at that point in time. Now, ironically, now you know, their loss is Orbital's gain, uh, but ironically, these companies, if that business development director had been walking up the corridor and turned right instead of left, he probably would have found a ship propulsion engineering division as well. And if he'd walked through that door, they also would have found familiarity and seen familiarity with the, with the problem. But effectively, they would have seen it and solved the problem in a way very much akin to how Orbital looked at it. Orbital's technology is effectively, if you, the way to think about it, it's, it's a ship in reverse. So our ship, we've got the ship's hull and we've got two legs that come out of the ship's hull and they go down. When they're generating, they've got blades at the end of the legs and all the power takeoff system, gearboxes, drivetrains, it's all down there. The legs go down to capture the tide and generate the power and they come up to the surface so that we can access them and do our maintenance. So if you think about it, you know, a ship's propellers propel the ship through the water to get from A to B. We hold the ship geostationary. The tide flows past the ship turning the blades and effectively, the energy just goes in reverse. It's a ship in reverse. All of the construction challenges have, are, are easily uh, overcome and had been overcome by the shipbuilding industry decades before. And some of the key engineering challenges and operational challenges, health and safety challenges have been overcome by either shipbuilding or oil and gas industries before. What Orbital, Orbital does, though, is, you know, it's all about pulling it all together into a unique configuration that takes all of these known problems, issues, solutions, and effectively puts them together into something that can deliver low-cost tidal energy. And to take that analogy just a little bit further, you know, you know, there's a lot of focus and, you know, this is playing well for us at this point in time. You know, you can have the best idea and the best uh, strategy in the world, but everybody needs a little bit of fortuitous timing. The energy transition has been spoken about in oil and gas for you know, decades, but it's real now. You know, the, the, the companies know that they have to be seen and want to be delivering against net zero policies. At the end of the day, our technology and our assets... The only difference, well, one, one of the key differences between that and an oil and gas platform is that it's electrons rather than hydrocarbons that we are pumping back to shore. You know, if you, if you get a good tidal resource, it's like a reservoir that never depletes. Yes, you'll need to go out and you'll need to repair things, you'll need to replace things, but ultimately it's big bits of fabricated steel out in the middle of the ocean generating energy.
the oil and gas companies have been doing that for decades. So this is actually quite a familiar and quite a comfortable first step for them in terms of going into a new area where they can deploy their existing skills, use their existing infrastructure, and actually project manage things in pretty much the same way as they already do. Now, we've tried to communicate that and deliver that message for certainly the, you know, the, the, the five years that I've been here. And people are genuinely starting. It's, it's, it's got traction now. People are realizing that this fits their corporate strategies. They realize that, you know, we can do a lot and we'll get to the wider market later, I'm sure. You know, this is significant enough and a big enough market opportunity to make a meaningful contribution to the world's net zero aspirations. You know, governments around the world have aspirations. Not all of them are lucky enough to have access to tidal resource, but those that do, they're starting to see that this could be a meaningful contribution towards those uh, towards those targets. So the O2 is the world's most powerful tidal turbine. It's floating in the waters up uh, up in or the Orkney Islands, uh, the European Marine Energy Centre, and it's connected to the grid. We're generating power onto the grid right now. So, Chris, the O2 would appear to tick lots of boxes for policymakers. Of course, there's the zero carbon agenda, but there's also the benefits from bringing jobs to coastal areas and the potential to create an export market. What are you doing right now to try and bring all that together? So what we are trying to do right now, and the O2 has given us the most wonderful platform for this, you know, it's been very deliberate, the amount of media attention that we've been trying to generate and harness uh, from the launch of the O2 and the um, the connection to the grid. We are sending a message, we're sending a signal to the UK government and indeed to governments around the world that this technology is here, it is now. But for the UK government in particular, what we are asking for, and the, the industry made an ask for AR4, uh, the, the fourth round for contracts for differences, that opens in December this year. The marine industry has asked for 100 megawatts to be ring-fenced for tidal energy and for a, a strike price of £250 to be um, put in place. Now, on the face of it, you know, I, I, well, first of all, the importance of that is we want to send a signal that the UK can effectively become you know, ground zero for marine energy, for tidal energy. We could be at the start of owning the next big offshore market. And I say big, and I mean big. You know, it's never going to be as big as offshore wind. And, you know, the industry, the marine industry takes, you know, holds its hands up. It admits that. You know, it's, it's not someplace that you can deploy all around the world. There are areas of global resource for tidal energy and it's not everywhere. You know, effectively the geology creates it. You know, you need some kind of throttling. So effectively where you've got, you know, either sort of islands uh, or sort of areas where there's a lot of this, a seas or basins emptying in and out of each other. So the Bay of Fundy in Canada is a huge tidal resource. There's some in and around Alaska, in North America. Uh, there's a lot in Southeast Asia, potentially, and, and in Japan. But in, in, in the UK and sort of North Europe, we've got some of the best resource in the world. So there's nothing stopping us from owning this industry. But that's competitive. Canada are putting in place market support. They've got the, the Force Resource Centre at Fundy. This really is the start, I, th I believe, of what could be the next big global offshore market. The UK has all the pieces to own it and to make it work. And 
Now, we're getting traction, a lot more traction than we've ever had before with the, uh, from the government, but we're just not quite over the line on it yet. Yeah, Chris, if only there was some kind of global climate conference taking place in Scotland sometime soon, that would be kind of helpful, wouldn't it? That would be good, wouldn't it? Yes, it would be. Uh, it would be. And, uh, you know, we, I can't say too much about it, but we are hoping to feature uh, somehow in and around COP26. We did actually. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to do it for security reasons, uh, but we did actually try and bring our SR2000. We, we offered to bring it down to Clyde so it could be sitting in the Clyde so that all the world leaders would be saying, well, what's that thing? <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, that this is the hope, you know. We hope and that we can profile and be very prominent in and around COP26. And we hope that people will be able to look at it and say, and leaders will say, oh, that's, that's fantastic. What are you doing to support that? The government has to be able to answer that question. They can't turn around and say, oh, we're not doing anything to support that. Yeah, that was a one-off. That can't happen. So we're doing everything that we can. Uh, and the industry is doing everything that it can to try and help the government get to the right answer here. Orbital has raised over £70 million to develop its technology to this stage. How much of that is in the form of equity and government grants? Orbital also raised crowdfunded debt through the Abundance platform. I was really keen to hear more about this funding in particular. So again, I do this a lot. I think you need to take a bit of a step back a little bit um, in some ways before um, answering that fully. I, I think we're all aware um, that there's huge volumes and walls of cash, I think is the is the term that's often used in the media. There's huge walls of cash which are showing that, uh, that are looking for a good home, are looking for a home, some kind of ESG focus, looking for something that's renewables. And because of that, there is a huge amount of competition. What we've seen is that in the in the competitive sphere of offshore wind in particular, you know, some, some, some funders aren't getting a look in. You know, they've, they've raised funds, but they're not, they're, they can't deploy them. They're not able to deploy those funds because they, they you know, they, and if they do deploy those funds, often the competition is so great that uh, the returns they're getting isn't what they've promised their investors. So I think one thing that I'm not seeing this fully play out yet, I am hoping that I see this fully play out a little bit more. What we've heard is that some funds are earmarking you know, a small proportion of the fund to look at slightly riskier propositions. Because, of course, with slightly riskier propositions, you're able to get a slightly higher return and that'll sort of build a little bit of uh, robustness and a bit of an evening out in terms of the overall project returns. That is something that we seen some evidence of when we first went out to market with the with the O2. So if you think I think in term to general terms you've got uh, in terms of risk profile, you know, generically you've got construction risk, you've got market risk, and you've got technology risk. Of course there's more, but those those are the three main buckets that people would uh, would sort of be familiar with. So when we went out, we we kind of had a little bit of a uh, Evidence to show that there wasn't, there was less than normal construction risk because we built the, the SR2000. We had um, a little bit less market risk than you could say because we actually had rocks, uh, renewable obligation certificates for the O2. So, you know, that was uh, one, a, a predecessor for CFDs and it meant that we were able to get an, uh, a, a commensurate 
amount of uh, money per megawatt hour, which meant that we could actually get project economics to work. Technology risk. Yeah, the SR2000 had been a huge success, but it was just a prototype. So, you know, as you say, you know, conventional uh, funders, a little bit more cautious, they're going to look at it and say, how do I know this thing's still going to be going in 15 years? So it, it was far from a vanilla ask. And then what we found, and we did, we, we were speaking to some, uh, a mixture, but, you know, some really good, really forward thinking, established, big infrastructure funds who really do understand the energy landscape and could see that Tidal was potentially a very attractive proposition for them for reasons I'll go into in a minute. And, and, and some you know, smaller funds that just you know, quite liked it, thought it was quite cool, quite, kind of quite liked the idea of being associated with it and, and helping make it happen. But what happened was, as we went through due diligence and as we sort of had discussions, you know, they were looking for, understandably, you know, these guys were looking for, you know, 15%, maybe higher returns. They want to take fees out. So it's quite expensive money. And then, you know, we are a small company. We are not, we don't have a big company balance sheet. We can't offer a warranty. And currently, insurance companies cannot offer loss of profits or business interruption insurance because it's just not mature enough yet. So all of a sudden, the risk profile started to look very unconventional for these people. And that's one of the things that we are working on with the O2. And, but I will come back to that in a second. So we were effectively looking at um, you know, an, an institutional-style investor providing project finance, but they were looking for a very, very, very high rate. And on top of that, they were trying to back-end the risk back to our shareholders. So, I mean, this really, <laughs> I mean, this is standard, you know, this is not, this won't come as a surprise to you at all. But effectively, people were looking for risk-weighted returns without taking any of the risk, uh, which is a great gig if you're in it. Uh, but for somebody, for, for an organisation like us, you know, who are genuinely trying to do something different and who are taking risks every single day on this, that and the next thing to try and deliver that vision, it's really unfair. But it's the world. But we, we you know, we, we took a step back and, you know, we were aware at the time of crowdfunding, but, and I, I hold my hand up to this, um, you know, I wasn't overly sold on it. Uh, I was aware there were some companies going out and raising funds that, you know, quite frankly, I didn't really understand how they were managing to raise funds. I thought, well, are these organisations being completely genuine? Are they being disingenuous about things? I'm not talking about our sector, no, the, the whole sector, you know, across the piece, you know, whether it's fintech, breweries, whatever it may be. And I thought, well, it kind of feels to me like this could, there could be a bit of a, a backlash here. You know, not due diligence maybe isn't being done properly. Some people are going to lose money. All of a sudden, nobody will like the whole idea. And oh, no, it, it, it concerned me. We started speaking to abundance, um, just because we sort of, sort of um, you know, we had, various mutual contacts and uh, we sort of met up and they completely changed my opinion. The people at Abundance, the, from the founders to the investment manager, these people are here and they are doing that for all the right reasons. They are genuinely doing what they are doing to try and make a difference. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I can assure you that they done thorough due diligence on us. And, you know, it was wonderful. You know, it actually completely provided me with the faith that I wanted and needed 
to feel that it was potentially a solution for us. Now, if you think about it, you know, in some ways, and I can quote this because, you know, it's it's, it's public, or MD could have looked at the investment opportunity. You know, we pay uh, 12% compounding interest on our construction bond. So it's still expensive, but hey, it's a new technology. Of course, it's going to be expensive. It's more expensive than I would like, but I think it's um, it's perfectly reasonable. And ultimately, um, we're going to be delighted to provide our investors with the return that they deserve. Um, and that was one of the key things for me as well. You know, a lot of people, my concerns were that companies were going out and trying to raise money without ever knowing that they were going to be able to pay it back. You can't go out and take money off the public unless you absolutely have visibility and faith that you are going to honour that commitment. And ultimately, we did. You know, he, and, and so we, we looked at it and thought, well, you know, these, these institutional players, they've actually got the money to lose, but they don't want to lose it. That's, that's, their, gig, that's their gig, that's their game. So, so, of course, if you're putting £15 million pounds or whatever it may be, but in this case it was sort of £7 or £8 million, pounds, if you're putting that as one chunk, one, one investor, £7 million, pounds, no, that's a reasonably big risk. So, yeah, they're going to want a decent return for it. By using crowdfunding we were able to do two things. And again, feeding into the timing, two key things. From the risk perspective, one, instead of having one single investor with a really big exposure, effectively, we were able to diversify that exposure down into manageable chunks. We had around 2,300 investors. Uh, the average investment was uh, around £2,500. So, you know, it's still a lot to lose and I don't want, and I wouldn't want anybody to lose that type of money uh, on my behalf or Orbital's behalf. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't like people were putting millions of pounds or betting their house or anything on it. It was chunks of money that people were using to support a cause that they believed in. And that was the key difference. You know, we are, we are fortunate. Our technology is visually stunning. We're able to, you know, we, we, we can tell, well, we're quite good at telling the story about the vision and how it's going to make a real, genuine, positive impact on the UK and the rest of the world. People liked the story. People bought into the story. And that was the second reason why we used crowdfunding. Again, government. We wanted to have a data set and and essentially, a, for want of a better word, you know, a, a, a sound bite that we could use when we were when we were when we knew we were going to be going into lobbying with the government. We wanted to say, the general public, your voters, they want this to happen so much that they put their own money into it. You're not doing anything for it, but they are. Listen to your voters. So that was the two key re- reasons: diversifying the risk, getting the inputs, brought the cost down from sort of fifteen, sixteen percent down to twelve percent and getting the soundbite that we could use to show government that the general public wanted to see this happen so much that they were putting their own money into it. So the government had to follow suit. And what kind of tenor did you get on that debt? When were you going to repay those lenders? So it's, uh, I say, unfortunately, it's accumulating. <laughs> so uh, we're, due to, we're, we're, we're due to refinance uh, at the end of June this year. Now, you know, it, it is. I hold my hands up. It's a complex picture. You know, there's obviously lots of moving parts. So we're in the process of uh, raising funds at the moment, which will uh, effectively top up any delta that there may be, because the accrued interest will have run into, um, you know, over three million pounds. 
by the end of that. We we are actually going to re- try and repay early. We did get an extension, obviously COVID put the construction project, even though we delivered it on budget, it did take longer. So we did, with the abundance investors were kind enough to grant us an extension to cover that. At the end of the day, we can't refinance an asset, a construction bond, if it's still in construction. So we had to get it out, we had, out of construction, we had to get it installed, we need to get it up and running, which is doing now. And then we'll refinance it. So we do have until the end of June, but we intend to and hope to refinance it early. So we will be going back out and we will be getting an operational bond to refinance a chunk of that that commitment. That will ideally be a a 10-year bond. Again, market risk is is still gone. It's still got the rocks. Uh, But technology risk, we still recognise that, well, you know, it's a 15-year project, but it's never been in the water for 15 years. Uh, there's never been an alternative. So we'll pro- we're going to do uh, or try and do a 10-year bond at around 6%. And will that be crowdfunding again? Uh, yes, we've got heads. We've got a term sheet from uh, from Abundance. They, they're very keen to give their investors the opportunity to come in uh, into a longer term product. Um, it will be. It won't be uh, compounding interest. It will be repayable. So we'll be repaying capital and interest on an annual basis. Actually, sorry, twice a year, so every six months. But it'll be a much shorter duration than the project itself. You know, the assets designed for about a twenty to twenty-five year design life, based on the various value the codes that it has to get built to. But the the rocks uh, run until the end of uh, well through twenty thirty seven, so we'll probably bring something in for a ten year life. And I hope you know I'm very I'm very hopeful and optimistic that um, a lot of the abundance in, in investors will will look at it. I hope they take their profit. Uh, but I'd like to think that a lot of them will be keen to reinvest um, and actually support us through this next phase. Uh, we are speaking uh, to other project investors that uh, might come in and invest alongside. So it might not be that the whole amount goes to abundance this time. Uh, We might bring a more traditional institutional investor in to do part of it. Again, you know, it's just part of the, in some ways, the growing up process. You know, we as a company uh, are maturing. The projects are getting bigger and we hope to get much bigger. So, you know, we need to start transitioning from, you know, this this innovative funding solution that we found and we're, we're fortunate enough to, to get support on and start transitioning to the, the bigger ticket stuff. If the UK government does put in place the right conditions to allow us to do a big project at scale, you know, even a 10 megawatt project, and we'd like to do something much bigger, uh, I say much bigger, you know, 15, 20, even a 10 megawatt project, you're probably talking the best part of about 50 million pounds of capital to be deployed. Now, that'll be a mixture of equity and debt. You know, we don't know yet, you know, what kind of leverage that will entail. Don't know exactly what kind of costs it will entail. But you are getting people like, you know, Scottish National Investment Bank, the UK Infrastructure Bank. No, banks are being set up because there's a recognition, I think, from the government that the traditional lenders will not necessarily be able to come into this space this early. So we do need a, we do still need a little bit of a transitional piece where, you know, people are willing to come in and maybe take the first loss position or, you know, be able to put in place debt that's maybe government backed because the insurance community isn't quite able to offer loss of profits yet. There's still a transitional piece needed. And that's where that's where a lot of our focus is on now. So a lot of my the, the O2 is going to serve a lot of purposes for us. You know, one one is I say around the insurance piece. 
And there's a lot of work getting done at an industry level uh, and Ocean Energy Europe, renewable risk partners have been uh, doing work with um, with Ocean Energy Europe to pull together a, a sort of th- a theory about how the state can 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 support the industry by pull- by using some kind of insurance fund. And what I mean by that is um, my understanding of the insurance is that there's a certain there's a there's a categorization called sort of leg two. And, you know, generally as a rule of thumb, after 8,000 operating hours, which I presume has some kind of statistical significance, that gives the, the insurance underwriters enough empirical data to be able to start to understand a risk and then most importantly, price a risk. So, you know, what we're going to be doing with the O2 is furnishing insurance, the insurance community or our insurance with, with this data so they can understand where the risks are what, you know, what the likelihood of these risks is and again price in what those risks mean and, and, and price in what a product to cover off those risks might look like because once you've got the business interruption or loss of profits insurance that's a key stepping stone for the conventional lenders to come in once you've got the ability to get conventional lenders to fund your project because it's insured then that's when third-party developers are able to come in and effectively be our customers instead of us developing our own projects. So effectively, what we're doing here is transitioning from us owning and operating our own projects, which is a model that we we may well continue for some time. You know, a vertically integrated energy company is is a good model for for the time being. We understand the risks uh, better than anybody. And actually, if people are going to be making money out of this industry in the early years and generating projects, then you know, our investors have invested a lot at risk up to this point. They need to make that back. So you know, we will own projects in the, in the short term, but ultimately, obviously, we want other people to come in and want to own our assets and de- develop projects on their own right. But they're only going to do that when it's familiar to them, You know, when the familiar contract structures uh, are available and everything just sort of fits. It's a bit more vanilla, mature, stable. Right now, we're not there, which is why there's only a subset of potential investors that uh, that were sort of coming to the table uh, back for the O2. But, you know, if the government sets in place AR4 and we are delivering bigger projects, I think there'll be a lot more appetite for the reasons that we discussed earlier. You know, there's a lot of money looking to be put to work. This is the type of project that can tick the box. We'll still be too early stage for some people, but there's the, 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 there is a growing community out there looking for projects like this that are willing to take on a little bit more early stage risk to try and help make make something happen and the benefit for them is they get their foothold in the industry you know once you you know offshore wind has shown you know once you actually get in and sort of establish your place in the market it can be very hard to to remove you so you know what again we're selling the vision that we believe this will be the next big global offshore market. So whether you're in the supply chain, whether you're in the the financial community looking to put money to work and fund the projects, we want to encourage them all to come in early and stake their place at the table. Chris, thank you so much for this. You've been really generous with your time and it's been fascinating to hear about the project and your plans for the future. Really hope we can circle back and hear how the next stage of the fundraising and project development goes. Thank you very much, Kenny. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners as well. And uh, I'd love to come back and give you an update in, uh, in 12 months time or so.
Huge thanks to Chris Milne and Sarah Watts at Orbital. And as usual, to Bren Russell, who edited and mixed this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to be part of a community of more than 3,000 infrastructure, project finance and PPP professionals, you can join for free at members.projectfinanceinstitute.com. <laughs>